0: Would you pray with me? God, there are many of us in the room this morning that have had weeks where we just need to hear those words again. That your grace is ours. That it's covered us, redeemed us, paid a ransom for us, and we're yours. So we sing that song in worship to you in gratitude to you this morning. And we pray, God, that you would help us to know, renew in us that joy of knowing that you are ours forever and that we are yours forever and there is nothing that can break that bond. God, we pray that in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Have a seat. There is this small book in the New Testament called Philippians. It's only four chapters long. And in those four chapters, Paul uses the word joy almost two dozen times. And I'll just be honest with you, uh, most of the ways that he uses the word joy, I like. I'm good with. But there are a couple of those ways that I find really tough to live with. Or should I say tough to live out? Like this one. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. And then for emphasis he says, I'll say it again. Rejoice. It's not the word rejoice that I have trouble with in that verse. It's the word always. You with me on that? I don't care what translation you read it from. And I read a lot this week looking for a loophole. The word always doesn't go away. And I don't care what personality type you have. Rejoicing always is going to be tough to live out. Because when life gets really hard, human beings fall into some pretty predictable Behavior patterns. There are some of us when life gets tough, we gush. We tell anyone and sometimes everyone about the tough stuff that's going on in our lives. You'll find them in the lobby right after the service is over. We tell our waiters or waitresses who are going to serve us lunch. After church, or even the helpless cashier at Jewel or Home Depot who is not cautious enough to ask us, not ask us the question, how you doing? And we gush. And it's really hard to characterize what comes out of our mouths at that point as rejoicing. When life begins to unravel, others of us fall into the comparison trap. We spend our days thinking about what life is like now. Versus what it was like before. We get stuck there wishing for the past, even if the past was just yesterday. And I think the majority of us, even if we don't do the other stuff, go into denial when the tough times come. We rush past whatever's happened. We deny, we stuff, or we just simply label what's happened as unmentionable. We begin to withdraw physically, emotionally, and even spiritually. Something inside of us instinctively lunges to grieve, but we stiff-arm that impulse, forcing ourselves to keep it together. Gushing, comparison, denial they don't lead us to joy. They only handcuff us to our pain, focusing us on the negative circumstances in our life. And joy doesn't come in bucking the circumstances. It only comes when we begin to surrender control of them. So I think most of what really limits us is far more abrasive than those slow, sneaky changes that happen in life. I think it's more often that sudden accident or illness that leaves us or someone we love in chronic pain. It's the business deal or the stock market crash that crushes our portfolio. It's the layoff or the downsizing or whatever term the person sitting across the table from us uses to explain why we don't have a job anymore. And I honestly believe that the Apostle Paul could empathize with what happens in our life when it begins to unravel. From a human perspective, I think Paul lost everything on one ill-fated road trip, from a human perspective. He was a leader in the Jewish faith. He had power. He had prestige. He had fame. He most likely had a good amount of wealth. And a single encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus cost Paul everything. For the rest of his life, he was a man who lived on the brink of death. He experienced multiple beatings that left him near dead. And they left him in chronic pain as well. He experienced A shipwreck, not once, but three times. He endured hardship, cold, exposure, all as he worked to spread the good news of the grace of God. He endured these hardships, while at the same time, he was experiencing some kind of a mysterious physical illness. Paul mentions it, but he never really goes into great detail to tell us what it was. So it's led people to do this search through all of Paul's writings and try to figure it out. You know, Their best guess is he may have had some kind of an eye disease like glaucoma or he might have had crushing migraines or maybe even multiple sclerosis. Some have even said maybe Paul in some of his journeys picked up malaria and he fought malaria all his life. We don't know what it was. We just know he had something, one more thing added on top of All of his physical limitations. On top of all of that, as if it wasn't enough, you could add this. Paul ended up being wrongly imprisoned. And he spent years wondering if he'd ever be exonerated, if he would ever be released, if he'd ever see freedom again. Let me ask you this. If that were you, what kind of letters would you write? What kind of emails would you send? What would your Twitter account look like? Would you send a message like the one we read earlier saying, rejoice in the Lord always? Seriously? I think people would start bailing from my Twitter account real fast, you know? I'm not sure I could write letters like that, telling people to rejoice, but that's what we have in this book of Philippians. Paul encourages a group of friends who he's helped establish a church. He encouraged them to follow his example so they'd be filled with joy. So I want us to focus this morning on a few verses at the end of that book where Paul basically writes a thank you note to these friends for a gift that they had sent to him while he was in prison to help sustain him. And Just parenthetically, prison didn't work quite like it does today. When you got sent to prison in Paul's day, you had to provide your own food, your own upkeep. So they basically locked you in a room, and if somebody didn't send money to pay for your food, you didn't get fed. So Paul was very grateful, I think, for the money that came. You'll understand why in just a minute, why I said, I think. Here's what he wrote. He said, I'm glad in God, far happier than you would ever guess. Happy that you're again showing such strong concern for me. Um, not not that you ever quit praying or thinking about me. You just had no chance to actually show it. I mean, actually, I don't have a sense of needing anything personally. I've learned by now to be quite content, whatever my circumstances. I'm just as happy with little as with much. With much. With little as with much, with much as with little. I've found the recipe for being happy, whether full or hungry, hands full or hands empty. Whatever I have, wherever I am, I can make it through anything in the one who makes me who I am. Uh, I, I don't mean that your help didn't mean a lot to me. It did. It was a beautiful thing that you came alongside me in my troubles. Now, seriously, I just want to pause there and say... I want to nominate this as one of the worst written thank you notes in the history of humanity. There is this humanness, this awkwardness in this. I think Paul could have done a lot better. If your mother ever sat you down and had you write thank you notes, you were taught. You just say thank you and let it go at that. Paul's humanness shows us. He stumbles over his words again. It's like he's saying, thanks for showing up again. That didn't sound right. Uh, So he's stumbling over it, and he goes, well, not that I think you stopped praying or anything. I wouldn't want to question your spirituality just because I didn't hear from you. But thanks anyway for the gift. Not that I'm a needy person or anything. I'm not. And not that I'm not grateful, because I am. I mean, if that's me writing a thank you note at that point, I've already torn it up, thrown it in the trash, and I'm going to start over. But the cost of writing in his day was so expensive, which we'll talk about in a minute. It's kind of like he kept writing. And beyond that, these things are divinely inspired. God's guiding his writing. So we know there's something in there for us to see. There's some truth coming through in his humanness. I love that it's just real and it's raw and it's Paul. The truth is there for us when Paul says, look, If I have food or I don't have food, if I have money or I don't have money, whether there's gifts coming or not, I'm going to be okay. I found a contentment that leads to great joy. What Paul's learned is that his joy is not defined by the additions and the subtractions in his life. And as you read those verses, you begin to understand what Paul calls this recipe he's found for discovering joy when life unravels. And it starts when we accept our circumstances. Paul's circumstances were really tough, but he had learned to accept them, and that freed him up to focus on the opportunities in front of him rather than focusing on what had been stripped away from him. His situation, where he was, was hopeless and helpless. He'd done everything he could to try to change his circumstances, made all the appeals he could, and still he was sitting in a Roman prison, still chained to guards. All stuff that shouldn't happen to him because he was a Roman citizen. He rarely talked about this. He rarely made mention of this in his letters. But in one of the last letters that he wrote, in in a letter that he wrote to a young man, Timothy, who was one of his protégés, he let his guard drop. And twice he says to Timothy, I'm suffering here in prison. I'm suffering and I have been chained like a criminal. You see his brokenness, You see how tough it was for Paul to endure those years. And until the slow, grinding wheels of government acted, there really isn't anything Paul can do. He's stuck. And he has to come to a place, and he has, where even though this is tough, he has accepted it. The same way he's learned to accept these other difficult things in his life. He surrendered control of his life and refocused his energy on God in his situation, which enabled him to do the second part of the recipe, which is adapt to his circumstances. He could have spent his whole time in prison, beating his head against the wall, complaining to the guards who were chained to him. He could have given up entirely on the call that God had placed on his life. God had given him a mission to help people discover God's grace. He could have just abandoned that, said, there's not much I can do. I'm in prison. What am I going to do? Instead, he did a very courageous thing in how he adapted. Unable to travel any longer, unable to visit those fledgling churches that he had helped establish, Paul sent letters. Now, I'm going to be honest. I wrote those words this week, and I looked at them. and I went, well, that doesn't, sound very courageous doesn't sound very innovative in fact i'm going to guess there aren't many of you who in the last month have pulled out a pen and a piece of paper and written a letter to somebody you know in our day we send emails or we pull out our phone and we write a text just a few keystrokes and we've sent something halfway around the world in a matter of seconds but in paul's day it was incredible The cost of papyrus and ink, as well as the difficulty of delivering that letter, there was no guarantee once you put it in somebody's hand and asked them to take it hundreds of miles away, that it would actually make the journey, that it would survive the journey and get to the person or the group that you had sent it to. It made it a valuable gift, not just a letter. A personal appearance by Paul would have been preferred as a means of communication, but that wasn't possible. So the letter was the next best option. And I don't know that Paul expected that his words would skip like rocks over thousands of years and have the impact on us that they've had. But we owe the existence of the majority of the New Testament to Paul's ability to adapt in circumstances that were beyond his control. Look, we rarely get to choose the things that are going to be subtracted from our lives. What we do get to choose is how we respond in those moments. How we reorganize and reorder our lives when things are pulled away from us. In those moments, Paul wrote to this church and he said, I'm going to be proud that I didn't run this race in vain, that my work hasn't been useless. I'm going to rejoice even if I lose my life, which was a distinct possibility of his prison time, because my life's being poured out like a liquid offering to God. Those are some courageous words. Because Paul wasn't living out his plan A or his plan B, by this time probably not even his plan G for his life. His circumstances changed so often. But as he accepted and adapted, it kept Paul's heart from growing bitter and resentful. It kept him from falling into that comparison trap, wishing his life could go back to the way it was. It increased his joy and it increased his dependence on God. See, it's not enough just to accept and adapt. If we stop there, we leave out the most crucial step, the most crucial ingredient in this recipe. In weakness and limits, Paul discovers that Christ alone is his source of strength. He says, I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Paul wants us to know that Christ is our tower of strength when our world gets toppled. He is our advocate when we feel abandoned by everyone around us. He's our comforter when we feel crushed. And when we begin to depend on Him, divine grace begins to seep into the cracks and the ruins of our lives. And it softens our will. Our weakness, it becomes an amazing opportunity for God's joy to be discovered And displayed. Paul listed all of those things he suffered trying to spread the gospel in 2 Corinthians 6. And after he listed everything he suffered, kind of summed up the impact of it this way. He said, We serve God whether people honor us or they despise us, whether they slander us or praise us. Look, we're being honest, but people call us imposters. We're ignored even though we're well-known. We live close to death, but we're still alive. We've been beaten, but we've not been killed. Our hearts ache, but we always have joy. It can be very easy to read the story of Paul's life and just miss the pain that was there. Even to the Philippians, he wrote and he said, Look, I know. But even while I'm in prison here, there are people all around me who are preaching from wrong motives, teaching about God for wrong motives, or doing it for personal gain. There are people saying horrible things about me. My life isn't going as it was planned. But here's the deal. My life is about people finding out about Jesus. And even though they're doing it for wrong motives, people are finding out about Jesus. So I find joy in that. His ultimate purpose in life was being accomplished, and he sees the big picture. Regardless of his circumstances, God continues to work in and through Paul's life, and for that reason, he says, I'll find joy in it. (laughs) God even did some pretty unlikely things while Paul was in prison, things he never could have imagined. In fact, as it turns out, because of his ability to adapt, some of the Roman emperor, Caesar's own personal staff, Had become believers. Nobody could have seen that as a possibility. When Paul was sent from Israel to Rome, nobody could have imagined that Caesar's staff would have become believers or that some of the guards chained to Paul would accept Christ. Some of the elite palace guards became believers. Out of the struggles that Paul was going through, God was bringing good. And he found joy. So I read all of those verses and I think about Paul's story and all of the stuff that he tucks into his letters along the way and I begin to wonder. Maybe the chaos in Paul's life. All the stuff that he perceives as chaos really isn't chaos. Maybe it was God's plan A all along. And Paul just perceives it as chaos. Could be. Or maybe. Maybe Paul is in Rome because he made a bad decision. He shouldn't have appealed to Caesar. But God's still bringing good out of the chaos. Or it could be That it's neither Paul's decisions nor God's plan A. It's other people making bad decisions and they're having an impact on Paul's life. God's still bringing good out of the chaos. And Paul's finding joy. I'm not sure which it is. And the Bible really doesn't tell us. But whatever's going on, Paul has learned to accept the circumstances, to adapt, to focus on God, to depend on him. And he's finding great joy. Which then causes me to wonder about my life and yours. And ask the question, got any chaos in your life? Got any place in your life where you feel like your plan A is gone, your plan B is gone, you're down to plan C or D? I do. My guess is you do, too. And I think about it, and just a few years ago, I sat in a room with my boss across the table from me, and I watched the clock over his shoulder as it took him 45 minutes to try to explain to me that I didn't have a job anymore. You ever sat in a room like that? Not a lot of fun. feels a little like a high school breakup, right? It's not you, it's us. There will be other jobs, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and it takes a little bit of time for the numbness to wear off, and then you start to wonder, will there be? And where will those jobs be? And what are the implications? I sat in a room with my parents, listened to the doctors explain to them how my mother's Alzheimer's was going to change her life, and how most likely it would end her life. And it did. And I fought chronic and at times debilitating pain brought on by birth defects that I didn't know I even had until I was 46. Happy birthday. (laughs) I don't say any of that to try to get sympathy from anybody. Those three things have all occurred in the last seven to nine years of my life. It's not to get sympathy. I'm doing good. My life is good. I say it. Because I've seen God at work in the chaos in my life. Losing my job seven years ago brought me here. I wouldn't trade that for anything. And my chronic pain has caused me to do life differently and slow down. And in slowing down, I found joy in a lot of ways, that I was missing. And even with my, mo- my mother's Alzheimer, as ter- Alzheimer's, as terrible as that disease is, there were periods in her disease that were filled with joy. She, she never was a great housekeeper, let's be honest. But she gave up what little compulsion she had and just kind of let things go. She gave up her compulsion about having to have the perfect meals and get everything to the table at the right time. And she was a much more joy-filled and childlike and open person about her life than she had ever been. And so maybe the best thing I could say to you this morning about joy is this. On that day that you discover that the smooth road you've been walking down begins to crumble or it gets destroyed. The best thing you can do is take out a slip of paper. Yeah, don't grab something electronic. Make this tactile. Grab a piece of paper and write three words on it. Accept, adapt, depend. And carry that piece of paper with you as your own permission slip for joy. Tuck it in your pocket, put it in your purse, put it in your wallet. Someplace you're going to see it often. If your friends see it and ask you what it's about, Just tell them you're working on becoming more content. You're trying to create more joy in your life. Actively cultivate joy using those three words. Do practical things with them. Let go of your desire to control life, it's an illusion. Find joy in the chaos. Take a nap. Live with a messy house for a while. Order takeout. Linger in the company of a friend. Breathe in the fullness of life. Use those three words as a recipe to fight back with joy, knowing that even within your limits, great joy is waiting to be unleashed.